If you look at the life of Peter, you find a man who is almost like two separate men. Jesus is walking alongside the Sea of Galilee and he sees these two brothers, Peter and Andrew, and he says, follow me. And they immediately begin to follow him. And while they're there, there's James and John uh, who are in their boat mending their nets and Jesus says the same thing to them and they're following him. And so the story of Jesus' public ministry begins. It's the same Peter that we find when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And the disciples are saying all kinds of stuff. Some say you're Isaiah or, or one of the prophets. Some say you're this. Some say you're that. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? It's Peter. Peter, the loudmouth. Peter, the one who knows the Sunday's Lancer, and he, and he says, oh, I know this one. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're right, Peter. And on this rock, I'll build my church and, I'll, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But it's the same Peter that we find just months later denying that he even knows Jesus. Even his accent's giving him away, but he refuses to admit it. It's the same Peter. I did, I, I'd never noticed this. Um, by the way, I was reading last night, last night doing uh, a, a daily reading and I was finishing up the book of John and in John chapter 21, Jesus comes to these guys. Um, they're out on the water, they're fishing. Peter has gone back to his former life of being a, a uh, fisherman and <laughs> He's on the, on the, on the, they don't know that it's Jesus. He's, he's on the bank and he calls out and he says, catch anything? And they say, no. And he said, well, try fishing on the other side of the boat. You'll find some there. And sure enough, 153 fish get in their nets. And the Bible remarks that apparently that was a lot for that size net because it, the, the statement is made that somehow the nets didn't break, even though there were so many. And Peter immediately knows it's Jesus. He gets out of the boat and swims to the shore. Um, in, they're eating breakfast and Jesus asked the questions, do you love me? Peter, Simon, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And we all focus on the word love because the word love changes between the first two times and the last time. And that's where I've heard a lot of sermons focus, but I've not ever heard a preacher point out the fact that what Jesus says after the third time, he says, do you love me? And Peter, distraught, because he keeps asking, says, Lord, you know that I love you. And then he says, you know, when you were young, you, you used to dress yourself. You used to go where you wanted to go. There's come a day where that's not going to be true anymore. Other people are going to dress you. And other people are going to take you where you don't want to go. Talking about the way that he would die. And then Jesus says, after saying this to him, he said, follow me. It's interesting that Peter, first time he meets Jesus, Jesus says the words, follow me. Some of the last words that Jesus says directly to Peter, follow me. You can hear the call. We've talked about before this call to follow me, and we've talked about how those two little words make up the difference in life. Jesus is calling us to not Peter, but he's calling us to, to follow me. It's this same Peter that would write the words that I just read earlier in the, in the book of Second Peter. And when he wrote them, he, he, he didn't write them from 
the bystander's standpoint. He didn't write them from the academician who's been studying for years and years and years. This is someone who walked with Jesus, who knew Jesus, who was an apostle of Jesus, and who could say with complete confidence because he had seen it at work in his own life that God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And in order to do, and, and in order to live in that way, we need his power. He knows because he's the one that could say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and turn around a little bit later and say, I don't know him. He knew that he needed the power of God at work in his life in order to do anything that was worthwhile, anything that was worth doing, anything that God wanted him to do. But he also knew that God gave him enough power to do everything that God wanted him to do. He had lived it. This is the same Peter that would take the gospel first to the Gentiles. This is the same Peter that would have the dream that anything is okay to eat. That it's not just about the dietary laws. Christ has fulfilled that part of the law. Now it's about you bringing people to Him, proclaiming the gospel, and making disciples everywhere you go. This is that same Peter. The same Peter that couldn't get it right. It's the same Peter who by God's power led the church and was part of that foundation upon which we are built today. And it all boiled down to these two words that Jesus said, both at the beginning and at Peter's restoration. Follow me. This morning we're talking about making disciples. And if you really want to get down to what making disciples is, it's following Jesus. That's what it is at its core essence. Discipleship is the woman standing at the back of the gym leading a whole bunch of elementary school kids in a VBS song and she's back there doing the motions and they're up on the stage in front of everybody staring straight at her copying what she's doing it's discipleship that's making disciples right there it's it's the young kid who is learning a new skill and within a week of starting to learn the skill is already teaching his siblings how to do it it's making disciples it's the missionary who is training a local man, that local man learning the gospel, learning the basic foundational truths of Christianity so that he can begin teaching them, so that he can, he can get, get along with some folks and, and pull them in together and show them what he's learned, how God has changed his life and what God is teaching him. So that you don't have to have missionaries in every single people group of the world to have the work of missions going on because you've got people there who are in that group who are trained and who are carrying on the ministry. Even when the government says outsiders can't come in anymore, it doesn't matter because you've got insiders leading. That's making disciples. Making disciples is not this big thing that only the spiritually elite do. You don't have to go to an academy or a university for years and years and years and get high levels of degrees so that you can have the credentials to make a disciple. Jesus calls us every single one to make disciples. It's a job for all of us. It's not just a job for the clergy. It's not just a job for the elite. It's not just a job for the missionary. It's not just a job for those really awesome people that we bestow the title of saint on as if they're better than anybody else. 
Maybe they do great works, but that's not what makes them a saint. God has already made us all saints by saving us from our sins and bringing us into his family. We are adopted by faith, and that is what makes us eligible to make disciples. No, that's what makes us responsible for making disciples. If we are to be the people that God wants us to be, we must make disciples. Now, that comes in different forms. It's a parent teaching a child the way they should go so that when they are old, they will not depart from it. That's making disciples. Perhaps it's a boss showing an employee how to do a task, but in the midst of showing the task, also showing them how to live, demonstrating kindness, respect, demonstrating a love for God in the way that they talk, in the way that they live before them. That's making disciples. There's a saying that says, um, preach the gospel, use words when necessary. Words are always necessary. But if your words don't line up with your actions, you may as well not even bother. When our lives and our words match up and both point to Christ, that is making disciples. This morning, I can't help but feel a weight on my shoulders because oftentimes I miss the opportunities to make disciples. I have the chance. And it's not its not like hidden in the rough where I've really got to go searching for it. It's like on a silver platter handed to me. I mean, can you imagine someone puts a cake in the middle of the table? Can you imagine eating so much food for dinner that you don't have enough room for the cake? Seems silly, doesn't it? That's how I often am with discipleship. I often miss what's right in front of me because I'm just not paying attention or, or I'm too busy with other stuff. My mind's focused elsewhere or I just let situations get the best of me and I don't take advantage of those opportunities. I know what it's like. I've been there. Too many times I've been there. But I'm becoming more and more and more convinced that every single day that God's given me, he has specifically given me the job of making disciples where I am. Whether that's at my work, whether that's at my home, whether that's in my church, wherever that happens to be. God is calling me to make disciples. And for me not to do that, that's shirking my responsibility. And it's the same with all of us. It's not just because, well, that guy seminary, so you know he's got a heavier load than the rest of us. Yeah, I'll admit, there, there's some pressure on me. There's a calling on me that changes the way that it works for me. But, but the basic idea is still the same. You have the chance. You have the opportunity. You can make disciples where you are, just like I can. And if we look around the world and we look at the history of Christianity, what we notice is that the church that is willing to make disciples, the church that is willing to do what God has commanded of them is the church that thrives. It doesn't matter what persecution is going on. In fact, it's even better when there's persecution going on. It doesn't matter what difficulties they're facing. It doesn't matter what the weather's doing. It doesn't matter what the government's doing. It doesn't matter what the society is doing to them. It doesn't matter because when they are following God's command to make disciples, people are growing in their faith. People are coming to faith in Christ and nobody can stop it. Not even the gates of hell can prevail. But only, but only when the church is being the church. Only when we're making disciples. This is such a crucial point because who we are and who God is calling us to be is all dependent on those two words, making disciples. If adoption by faith is how you get in the family, 
Belonging together is how you live in the family. Making disciples is how your family makes a difference. If adopted by faith and belonging together describe the nature of the church, making disciples is the mission of the church. And it's kind of funny because we have this thing called a commission. Y'all ever heard of it? Matthew chapter 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. We understand now that all nations doesn't just mean every geopolitical section of people. Every group that's represented at the United Nations. Every country that enters a team for the Olympics. That's not what's meant by nations. Nations is ethnos. It's the ethnic groups. India has over 70 different languages. And there's more people groups than languages. We recognize that just walking into India and sharing the gospel with somebody isn't reaching India for Christ. We recognize that we've got to reach every people group that's in India. We've got to make sure that all of them have the chance to know the gospel. Not just one group. Not just the ones that can speak English. Not just the ones that look like us or talk like us. We recognize that every people group needs to hear the gospel. And not just hear the gospel, but follow the gospel and be disciples. We recognize uh, when Jesus says to go therefore into all nations that we're going to have to actually go to get to them. That we can't just stay and get to them. There are some places in the world where you could stay put. New Orleans, Louisiana is a great example. Miami, Florida is a great example. Seattle, Washington is a great example. Places where you can stay in that city and encounter tons of different peoples. But to reach all the nations, you can't just stay. You've got to go. We recognize, go ye, therefore, into all nations, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. We recognize that as the church of Jesus Christ, we are to go make disciples and we're to do it by helping them come to faith in Christ and follow in faith in obedience to what Christ has said. We're called to make disciples. And that doesn't mean that we should all move to Africa. God's maybe, maybe, maybe someone here is destined for Africa. I don't know, but I do know this. All of us are destined All of us are chosen by God to be in his family. And he didn't put us in this family so that we could enjoy the perks and not do anything about it. He put us in this family so that we would make disciples. Now, having said all that, the task before us, I think, is pretty clear. The question is, how? How do we make disciples? I don't think the question is, should we make disciples? Anybody still confused on that? I can preach for a lot longer on it, if you like. The question is, how? Before I say how, Let me eliminate one of the biggest barriers that I have found in my own life and I've found in many other churches. We don't know how. Biggest thing here at work as an excuse for someone not to do something they're told to do is I don't know how to do that. Go go work in this section. Go do this. And they say, I don't know how to do that. One of the best answers I hear from leadership is, come on, I'll show you. (laughs) Because that just eliminates, right? I don't know how. That's the biggest excuse we give. How many times have you had something to do or been given something to do and you just look at it and you say, I don't know how to do that. And you think that absolves you from all responsibility. Anybody done it? No? Nobody? Or you just don't want to admit it? It's okay. 
It's all right. All right, maybe I need to preach online. Okay. We all come to a point where we're just scared because we don't know how. What if I don't know the answers? What if they ask me a question and I just don't know? Can I tell you something? I think it really boils down to whether we trust God or not. We talked about Gideon today. Gideon (laughs) has 32,000 men, and God says, you got too many. Wait, I'm going to war. What do you mean I got too many? No, you've got too many. And so Gideon says out, whoever doesn't want to fight, you're scared to fight, whatever, you just go home. 22,000 walk away. Boy, that's got to make you feel good as a general, huh? So he stands at the 10,000 and he's like, all right, now we're ready to fight. God says, nope, you still got too many. Oh, good Lord. You want me to go by myself? What, what, what are you doing, God? What are you doing? I don't understand. We're going to fight. We need a lot of soldiers, right? Might makes right. You don't, you don't win a war with nobody. You got to actually have somebody, right? What was Gideon's problem? He trusted in men. He trusted in might. God had to say, no, 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 no. You don't need to trust in them. You trust in me. He says, go to the brook. Watch how they drink. If they kneel down and put their face in the water, (laughs) we don't want them. We want the ones, we want the ones that'll keep their heads up and bring the water to their mouths. That's who we want. Well, 9,700 said bye-bye from that test and 300 are left. Now here's a, uh, Here's a quiz for you. Show of hands. Who wants to go to war with 300 men against a massive army of the Midianites? Who wants to do that? Anybody? Come on. Nobody? I don't blame you. But God says, I've got this. You don't need, not, he told Zechariah, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So if we're going to do this, we actually have to trust in God. We can't trust in ourselves. I mean, (laughs) We're the ones that say, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And when the rooster crows, we're ashamed. That's us. We can identify with Peter. We know what it's like to know the right answer. But when the going gets tough, to shrink back and be afraid, too afraid to actually step out for Christ. We know what that's like because we've lived it. And yet, if our trust is in God, then we find out an amazing truth. Stand with me. Work. This is the verse I'm actually preaching on today. And I know it's taken me a while to get to it. I understand that. But this verse, these verses give us how we know we can make disciples even when we're not good enough. Even when we don't have enough knowledge. And even when we don't think that we can do it in ourselves. This verse points us somewhere else and shows us that making disciples is God's command, but that He is the one who's going to empower it. So listen to Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes rather speaking the truth in love 
We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You may be seated. We are called to make disciples. And the biggest thing that I want you to see today is not the fact that we have such a big task in front of us. It's not the fact that it's going to take every effort of our energy, every effort of of our faith in order to fulfill that mission that God has given us. What I want you to see this morning is the fact that God has given us everything we need to be disciples who make disciples. He hasn't left anything out. Peter said he's given us everything. And he should know because he needed it. God has given us everything we need to be disciples who make disciples. We have no excuse. Look back in verse 11. And he gave the apostles. Who are the apostles? Those are the men who walked with Jesus, who knew Jesus, who saw the resurrected Lord. Fifteen of them are mentioned in Scripture. Fifteen. That was enough. Fifteen men who saw Christ, saw him as raised from the dead, and could testify, could outright say, I know he was dead and I know he's alive now. I've seen him with my own eyes. Now, there were others who saw Jesus, but these men, these men had walked with Jesus in a totally different way. These weren't just folks that that saw him around, that maybe saw him do some miracles, heard him teach a little bit, thought what he was saying was right. These were men that had devoted their lives in the case of Paul, devoted their life against Christ until Jesus met him on a road to Damascus and suddenly everything changes. But these are men who could testify out of experience as to who Christ was. Not just the spiritual experience, but the physical one. He gave the apostles. He gave the prophets. Who are the prophets? They're the ones who spoke the words of God. God spoke to them and they spoke to others. Thus says the Lord. This is what the Lord of hosts has said. This is what God has spoken. These are the ones that the word burns within them in such a fire that they cannot contain it in themselves. Jeremiah says, I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. God has spoken to them and they speak the words of God to people. That's the prophets. The evangelists, those are the ones with that special calling to share the gospel. It doesn't matter you could be, you could be, you could be in prison. Doesn't matter. Who is it? John MacArthur said he's willing to start a prison ministry. They want to put him in prison. He'll, he has not done that ministry before, so let's have it a go. It's that evangelist. It's that, it's that idea that no matter where you are, no matter who you're talking to, no matter what you're doing, you're sharing the gospel with people because you recognize the importance of that gospel and how much it'll change their lives. It doesn't matter the kind of persecution that you're going through. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're not even going through persecution. You're talking to somebody on the phone to get your cable TV set up, or it's messed up and you're trying to get it fixed. And you're talking to them about the goodness of your God and what Jesus has done for you. That, that's an evangelist. It's not just the guy that travels around preaching revivals. No, it's the person who takes the gospel seriously enough to share it everywhere they go. That's the evangelist. He gave the shepherds and teachers. This is one office with two primary roles. One is getting the sheep to quit wandering away or pulling them back when they do, I guess. 
It's, it's, it's the person who cares for people, who loves people, who, who, who brings them into the fold and nurtures them. And teachers, the ones who instruct, the ones who help you know what the Word of God says and what it means. Ezra, is, they're, they're sitting at the, the, the foundation of the temple has been laid. Ezra gets everybody together, starts reading the law, and there's a bunch of men out in the crowd that start discussing what the law means, helping people understand it. That's the teachers. Doesn't have to be a Sunday school teacher. Doesn't have to be a preacher. When you're showing someone what God has said and what it means, notice who gave the apostles, the prophets, the, sh- the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, where'd they all come from? Who's he? He gave. Who's he? Come on. This is easy. Softball pitch. Slow pitch softball right here. Come on. Who's he? God. Jesus Christ did. He's the one who's given these things to us. God has given us everything we need. He's given us everyone we need. He's given us all the gifts. He's given us all the talents. He's given us all the resources, all the abilities, everything we need. In other words, the impetus isn't on us to figure out how to do it. It's on us to trust Him and do what He has said with what He has provided. Just do it. The call isn't to figure it out. The call isn't to reinvent the wheel. The call is just do what we know we ought to do. That's what makes this so easy and at the same time makes it so so maddening when I look at my own life and see that I'm not doing it the way that I should be because it's all right there. All I got to do is act. That's it. I hope isn't permanent and isn't widespread, but I fear that it may be. Do you want to know why Southern Baptists have less baptisms every year for the last 20 years? It's not an evangelism problem nearly so much as a discipleship one. See, if we were making disciples, they would be evangelizing. Once in Scripture, I find the command, preach the gospel once. But I find very often the description that people were preaching the gospel. Do you know why that is? Do you know why he doesn't have to command it very often? Because it's natural. That kid that I was telling you about, teaching his siblings a new skill that he was just learning. Yeah, that's what naturally happens. Let me show you what I learned. Your, your four-year-old or your five-year-old or your six-year-old or your ten-year-old wants to come home and show you what they learned in school, not because they want to teach you, but because they want to show you what they learned, right? That's proto-discipleship. Now, all you got to do is show that to someone who doesn't know, and that's discipleship, right? <laughs> See, I know how to read. I know the word is and in and ant and, and, and at. My kids, my youngest kids are learning those words now. And so as we read, every time I get to one of those words, I stop and I point to it. Now I let them read it. Not because, not because I can't read it, because I want them to learn. Discipleship. And when they come home and they tell me, guess what I learned today? And let me show you what I learned. Look what letter this is. Or whatever it happens to be. That excitement and telling. That's not unnatural. That's natural. And that's all discipleship is. It's just, you're just showing somebody who doesn't know yet. Instead of showing somebody who does, that's the only difference. God has given us everything we need to be disciples who make disciples. It means we have to be disciples, but even in the process of being disciples, we have what we need to make disciples. God's given us all the gifts we need, and he's given us those gifts for a couple of reasons. Verse 12 tells us that he gives us these gifts to equip us for ministry. Look in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. See, there it is. 
You think I just made that up, but no, it, it comes right from the text. For the building up of the body of Christ. God gives us what we need so that we will have what we need in order to do the work that he's called us to do. That's not all. Verses 13 and 14 show us that he does this to grow us to maturity. It's not just to help us do what we're supposed to do. It's so that we will become who we are supposed to be. Verse 13, until we attain, we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why does he put so many words in there? Just to say, I want you there all the way. I don't want, I don't want you partially there. I don't want you kind of there in some respects and not in others. I want you to have, I want all of you to have it we, until we all attain. I, don't, I want you to have unity, unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. I want you to have mature manhood, every single one of you. Some of you are like, I'm a woman. Okay, mature womanhood. That's fine. God wants us to be mature. He doesn't want us to be children tossed to and fro as he's going to describe in the next verse. He doesn't want us to be a ship on the waves. He wants us to be stable and secure. He wants to grow us to maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Those are three separate Greek words that all point to the same idea. You've got everything of Christ. I want you, I want you to grow up to be as tall as him, as smart as him, as good looking as him. I want you to follow through in Christ in everything you say, everything you do, everything you are. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Saying love God with everything. That's what I want you to be able to do. I want you to have the fullness of Christ in every conceivable way. I don't want you lacking anything. Now, does that happen this side of heaven? No. But boy, it's a good goal to reach for, isn't it? Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You can trick a child into almost anything. It's a lot harder to trick a man, someone who knows what's true. I don't want you tossed around by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The idea here is by just someone being smarter than you or even by someone tricking you. Sleight of hand, outright lying. No, I want you to be mature. So I've given you everything you need to grow to maturity. God also gives us everything we need in order to build us up in love. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself in love. If we are doing what we are supposed to do, God in the process is building us up. It's, it's kind of funny. I, I started taking Taekwondo. And now, the other day, I said, you know, someone was complaining about this, and, and the instructor said, well, well Mr., Mr. Mike's over there not complaining. And, and this girl said, well, he's in better shape. I said, no, <laughs> that's not true. I'm just not complaining out loud. I'm complaining in my head, but not out loud. But I am in better shape than I was when I started. I can stretch a little further than I could when I started. I can kick a little higher than I could when I started. I can do things a little bit faster, a little bit better, a little bit stronger. Now, I haven't been doing it long. But I've been doing it long enough to know that just by doing it, I get better. You see, if you're waiting for you to have everything you need 
You shouldn't be waiting because God's already given it to you. If you're waiting for you to get good enough, how are you going to get good enough if you don't do it? Fact is, we have no reason to wait. God's taken away every excuse. It's the only thing he's taken. Everything else he's given. He's given us his son, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for our sins and given us a way to know him personally. He's given us the gifts we need to follow through, not only in, in obedience to what he said, but in obedience to where he leads us that may not necessarily be in the scripture. What college should I go to? Should I take this job or not? What do I need to do in this situation? Those are things that you can't just open up the Bible and read half the time, but you can listen to the voice of God and he gives you that. He's given us everything we need. There's nothing that we lack except an excuse. We have everything we need to do it. So it's time for us to make disciples.